Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Generations. We're going to open with prayer and turn the service over to our guest ministers. We're blessed today to have Laura Duncan's brother, Dennis Brown, and his lovely wife, Susan, here to minister to us in song and in word. Are you ready to worship the Lord and celebrate the reason for the season? Amen. If you're joining us online, God bless you. Enter in with us. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you, Lord, for giving us the gift of Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for being manifested in the flesh for us and giving your perfect life for 30-plus years, living a righteous life, a life that would be accredited to ours. Thank you, Lord, for your perfect record. And, Lord, thank you for giving your life for us on the cross and for rising up from the dead as the risen Lord and Savior, not only the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, but our high priest to make sure we receive all the benefits of your sacrifice. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we show some love to Dennis and Susan? Good morning. It's great to be here in Granbury. And uh, some of your faces I recognize. Some of you I probably would if you didn't have masks on, but, you know, we'll, we'll do fine. I uh, want to welcome everybody again who are joining us online as well. Appreciate uh, Pastor Allen giving us the opportunity to share today. I'm going to talk about something that I really enjoy, and that is Christ in the carols. You know, I kind of chuckle. When I go to the mall, well, I try not to go to the mall, but when I go shopping and go to the grocery store in the middle of Santa Baby, Winter Wonderland, uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Somewhere in there, I will hear something like Silent Night, or Come All You Faithful, or Joy to the World. Even in the midst of society that's increasingly secular, we still get to hear songs about the Lord Jesus. Now, I think that's special. So, I have a friend who told me several years ago he's an agnostic. He's a great guy. We're good friends. And he told me a week or two ago he heard the song, O Holy Night. How many have heard O Holy Night? O Holy Night, the stars above. And he talked about how it was such a sacred moment to hear that song. And I thought, you know, here's someone that claims not to really have any religious faith at all or Christian faith at all, but that there's something about the birth of Christ that even causes people that wouldn't normally give much attention to it to stop and consider. So... Here's what's going to happen today. We're going to do a little bit of interaction. And since it's the Sunday before Christmas, uh, we're going to do some talking, singing. We're going to play Name That Tune in just a little bit. I want to see how musical you all are. And I want to stress, in fact, I'm so appreciative of the music that was playing before the service started. This is not a Christmas sing-along. This is a worship service. We're going to be using three different carols for worship, but if 
if we just sing it along like we'd sing at a work party or a school party, we're going to miss the real blessing that I believe the Lord wants to give us today. And that is, it's a time to worship. So hopefully we're going to have a little bit of fun. And you may hear some things a little bit different that give you something to think about. That's fine. But the most important thing is that when we get through today, if you walk out of here with a greater love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus and more in awe of our Heavenly Father, I will have been a success because that's what I really want to happen today. Are you ready? All right. First, name that tune. Now, if you figure out the song, don't shout it out. Raise your hands. This is for adults as well as kids. You ready? Okay. Are you ready? Oh, no, you can't call it out. Can't call it out. Okay, one person. Uh, no. <laughs> Give this man an applause. How did you know that? Did you, did you look up? I'm sorry? We have a ringer in the house here. How many have heard that song? I figured, I figured I'd have to play several lines or something, but we have a veteran musician. Who knew? All right. So we're going to talk about two phrases. I'm not going to really go through the story. It's a story about the shepherds in the fields. The angel appears to them, and they're startled. And he says, there's a baby born in Bethlehem. And when he finishes, he says, and now the angel choir. And the curtains of heaven open up, and there's just this beautiful heavenly choir. I would have loved to heard what that choir sounded like. Church choirs, in my experience, don't have an excellent reputation. If you were raised in church and it wasn't a really big church with professional musicians, church choir was the most embarrassing part of the service. You just don't want any of your friends to hear that stinking choir. Mm. Can you imagine what it would be like to have heaven's choir? Now, they sang a couple of things. The first one, Christ the Lord, our newborn king. And this is in the song, Angels We Have Heard on High. Christ the Lord, our newborn king. We're going to talk about Christ the Lord. Now, when you and I use that term, Christ the Lord, or we say, would you like Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, there's nothing wrong with using it, but we've lost the significance of what that meant. You see, in that time, the Roman Empire uh, was the world power, and there was one person who could use that title. In fact, one of the person's titles was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the only person in the Roman Empire that could use that term was Caesar. Now, the idea of king of kings, they still had kings throughout the Roman Empire. Think of King Herod and different kings. But Caesar was over all of the kings. It was king of kings, lord of lords. Now, the Roman Empire was very religiously diverse. They, they wanted all the different provinces and the tribes and so forth to carry on their own religion. It kind of helped solidify the empire. But 
there was one requirement. You could believe anything you want, but you were obligated to go to one of the local temples with a fire that's on the altar and offer incense and say, Caesar is Lord. So Christians come along and they claim to have someone who rose from the dead. And the Roman authorities kind of roll their eyes, say, sure, whatever, we don't believe in that. But it's okay, you can believe whatever you want. Knock yourself out. But by the way, don't forget to go to the temple, throw the incense on the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. Christians had a problem with that. They tried to be good citizens, but they said, we can't say Caesar is Lord because we believe Jesus is Lord. And if you believe Jesus is Lord, you are implying that Caesar is not. To say Christ the Lord or Jesus is Lord in that day was as much a political statement as it was a religious statement. So when the angel says, Christ the Lord is born today, or we sing in angels we have heard on high, Christ the Lord, our newborn king. It's more than just a nice extra little title for Jesus. We are doing what the early Christians did. What they were basically saying is, I pledge allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everyone in here knows what it is to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag. The ancient Romans said, I pledge allegiance to Caesar. But the Christians said, now get this, the Christians said, we pledge allegiance to one person and one person only. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When you ask someone or you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life? For us, it's just pretty, you know, simple. It's like, you mean if I, if I say the right words, I get a free ticket to heaven? <laughs> What's wrong with that? The fact is, to say that Jesus is Lord means that out of all the other loyalties, out of all the other values you have, the number one loyalty is to the King of Kings. So the second one, you're going to be able to walk out of here and tell your friends at the next Christmas party, <clears throat> I know that one. I could say e pluribus unum. I could say carpe diem, seize the day, and I know this phrase, gloria in excelsis deo. And by the way, I, something I only learned a few years ago it's spelled like in excelsis, like it's Excel spreadsheet. It's actually pronounced in excelsis, like a CH. And it's a beautiful Latin phrase. It simply means glory to God in the highest. And in just a moment when we sing Angels We Have Heard on High, we'll get to the chorus, Gloria in excelsis Deo. I want you as best as you can stir up in your own heart and in your own mind. 
worship God in that, even though it's a different language, to say glory to God in the highest. Think we can do that? Let's stand together. seated. Y'all make a good choir. <laughs> All right, we're going to play Name That Tune again. Don't call it out, raise your hands, and you don't count. <laughs> he won the first one. Okay. If you know it, raise your hand. All right, what y'all are fast. Y'all are really fast. What is it? Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And contrary to what someone I know thought, it's not about an, an angel named Harold singing. It's the angels heralding a message. So just to be so we clear that out. Oh, we may as well do the other one while we're at it.
What is it? What is it? Oh, come on your favorite. All right. Excellent. Now, did, did anyone bring Bibles today? Got it. We got some new. Good. Good. We're going to talk about these two carols, but I'm going to talk first about a man named Charles Wesley. Handsome looking dude for being in the 1700s. John and Charles Wesley were part of a great religious movement in the mid-1700s in England. It's estimated that they had 40,000 people come to faith in Christ in a relatively short time. Uh, most of these people were people that wouldn't have ever been in church, and a lot of the churches at the time really didn't want them there. They were coal miners, day laborers, very poor. Many of them were not even literate. And all of a sudden, they've come to faith in Christ. Now, John was the preacher and a brilliant organizer. And out of this movement, by the way, you've probably heard what the name of their church. It still exists today. It's called the Methodist Church. But Charles was a composer. It is, it is estimated that he composed over 5,000 I bet you've heard a couple of them. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. How many have heard that song? I bet more of you heard this one. Christ the Lord is risen today. That is Charles Wesley. Now, they had a problem because they had all of these people. A lot of them couldn't read. You could hand them a Bible. wouldn't do any good. They said, how can we teach the great truths of our faith in a way that, that people it'll stick with people and they can learn it? And Charles came upon a technique and a method that we use in this country today. And let me give you the example. There is a song I guarantee just about everyone in this room has heard. It's beloved, multiple grannies, people from the youngest ages to the oldest ages have sung it. And this, it's such a powerful, moving song. Let me see if you know it. How many people learned the alphabet when they were small by singing that song? Yeah. <laughs> you see, sometimes music has a way you can remember things. It really bugs my wife. I was raised in church. I can remember all three verses of a song that I sang when I was 10. I can remember the page number and the key it was written in. But she sends me the story. I forget what she wanted me to get. There's something about music that helps us remember. So we're going to look at a couple of these phrases that Charles wrote. Mysterious phrases. Would you say that with me? Mysterious phrases. Because we sing them. If you've, if you've ever sung these two carols, you have sung it. 
most people don't really know what it's talking about. We just kind of sing it because it's there. And here they are. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. What in the world is that talking about? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And the last one is from, O come all ye faithful, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. These are not terms that we use in everyday life. Now I need you to take your Bibles. And we're going to we're going to dig way back into the past to see what these songs and these words are talking about. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to the book of Hebrews. It's almost, if you're not real familiar where it is, if you go to the end where Revelation, you go back about 20 pages. You come to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm actually going to read it from the message version because I, it, he captures it so well. Going through a long line of prophets, God has been addressing our ancestors in different ways for centuries. Recently, he spoke to us directly through his son. By his son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will all belong to the son at the end. Notice this phrase, the son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's name. He holds everything together by what he says, powerful words. So let's go back in time, past King David, past Moses, past Adam and Eve, and all the way back whenever that was, however long ago that was. In the beginning, It says that through the Son, the Father created the worlds. It's like, well, wait a minute. God created the heaven and the earth. Think of it this way. If a boss wants to write a letter to another company, she will tell her secretary, I want you to write a letter to so-and-so. Here's what I want you to tell him. Bring it in for me to sign it. So the secretary goes, types up the letter in her own words, puts the boss's name at the bottom with the boss's initials in capital letters, a little slash, and then the secretary's letter or uh, name and initials in little letters. And the boss signs it. Let me ask you, whose letter is it? It was the boss's letter who wrote it. It was the secretary. Think of it this way, that the father and the son working together, very much in the beginning, says, by his son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will all belong to the son at the end. Now, here's the other phrase. If you didn't remember anything else I say today, I want you to get what we're about to say. The son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped 
with God's nature. And here it is. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's so good, I'm going to say it again. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. You see, the writer of Hebrews said God spoke at different times in different ways. God spoke through Moses. God spoke through Daniel. God spoke through uh, David and so forth. But he said in his time, what they called the last days, he said God has spoken directly to us through his Son. There are pictures of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed, sometimes some of the pictures in the Old Testament of God just kind of like, hmm. If you want to really know what the Father is like, in the fullness, read the Gospels. Read how Jesus reacted to people. Read what Jesus said about his heavenly Father. You know, a lot of us have been raised for whatever reason, whether in church or because of authority figures, we've been raised with certain pictures of God of how we think he is, of how we think he treats people, of how we think his attitude is. I know a lot of Christians that perpetually believe that the Father is somehow, he may not be angry, but he's disappointed. I know people that interpret bad things happening in their lives, a sickness or an economic uh, setback, as God's punishing them for something that happened years ago. But you see, if you want to know what God is like, don't go to the scriptures and say, if you're good, you'll get good stuff. If you're bad, you'll get bad stuff because we know it works until it doesn't. If you want to know what God is like, go to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the perfect representation of our heavenly Father. When I started to see that when I was reading the Gospels, this was a few years ago. And this, I, I got to tell you, this rocked my world. Because when I started to see how Jesus described his father, that he clothes, he cares for the lilies of the field. The flowers, they're here today, gone tomorrow. He cares. He feeds the birds. He actually cares enough to know the number of hairs on our head, and I'm proud to say his job with me is a lot easier than some of you. <laughs> but to see a father who is not waiting for you to just kind of trip on the tightrope so he can cast you into hell, but to see a father who is kind and generous and loving to his children, who is quick to forgive, who is quick to bless. Jesus said his Father sends rain on the just and the unjust, the good and the bad. He is kind to the unthankful. Aren't you glad he is? If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. The other pictures have their place, but they're incomplete. 
Jesus is the one. Well, let's look at the second verse. I'll show it. Colossians chapter 1. Go back about 20 pages to the book of Colossians. And this goes right along. I love this passage. This just, every time I read it, it, it's just a... Colossians chapter 1. starting in verse 15. He is, referring to Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. And that Greek word is the word icon. How many have heard of the term icon before we use in computers and so forth? In that day, icon meant the exact replica of a person. The Caesar's likeness was on the coins, and they called that icon because if you could look at that coin, you'd say, oh, that's what Caesar looks like. Well, Paul is saying here that Jesus is the exact icon of the Father. By him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, whether the thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now let's look at John chapter 1. We're just moving through these fast. John 1 says, In the beginning was the word, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. For he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Sweetie, come here. Now, people ask, uh, they come in if they see me, didn't see Sue. They say, "Uh, did you come with anybody? And down to Granbury, Dan, I say, yeah, I came with Sue and my daughter, Katie. But, you know, Sue could have dropped me off and gone into town to shop. We're still in Granbury together, but she's not with me. Or I could say, yeah, uh, Sue and Katie and I are here uh, at church, but maybe Sue is in the kitchen or down the hall or whatever. She's with me, but she's not with me. Now, in the Gospel of John, when it says the Word was with God, here's what it meant. It was intimate, close, face to face. I'll get her to laugh. Close, face to face. The point is that there was an intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. I know people that believe that if you, this is true, if, if, if you pray to Jesus or you worship Jesus, the Father will get jealous. I've had people tell me that. And I'm thinking, that's not the picture the gospel tells. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I only say what I hear my Father I only do what I see my Father do. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There was an intimacy 
a closeness with the Word of God. In verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for became flesh and dwelt among us, it's tabernacle. Remember the Old Testament tabernacle was like a portable tent? I like how the message puts it. It said, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. So when we say word of the Father now in flesh appearing, it's referring to John chapter 1. Now, if the Son with the Father had helped in the creation, if he'd been with the Father in the beginning, and now he has become flesh. Theologians call this incarnation, which simply means something that was invisible is now made visible. Something that was invisible is now made visible. Look in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And this is going to tie it all together, my friends. So we get, we're going to sing in just a few minutes. Paul is writing and he's saying, he's talking about having a good attitude, being a servant. But in verse 5 it says this, Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now this is where it's going to get interesting. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And the language it says that he had it, but he didn't feel like he had to hang on to it. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now, this is where this stuff really starts to come together. It's one thing to say, yeah, the Son of God was with the Father at the beginning. He helped in creation. But for the Son to become flesh, to move into our neighborhood, it says that he emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, let's think about three characteristics of deity. Number one, they're all powerful. It's called omnipotent. Have anybody ever heard that term, omnipotent? It means all powerful. You can do anything you want, whenever you want, however you want, all-powerful. They were omniscient, meaning all-knowing. Anything that was knowable, deity would know. And omnipresent, everywhere at once. Remember what David said, where can I go from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the center of the earth, you're there. If I go to the ends of the world, you're there. Omnipresent, everywhere. What did the Son have to give up, what did he empty himself of? I don't know if you've seen the movie Sahara with Matthew McConaughey. It's one of our favorite movies. They're in North Africa and they're on a mission 
And uh, McConaughey's character and his buddy look up and there are armies all around with guns trained on. So McConaughey says, let's get out of the Jeep very quietly and carefully. So they get out and they're looking around up on the hills in front of them with these guys with guns pointing at them. So McConaughey says, let's take out the weapon, put him down. So he takes out his two handguns, drops them like this. His friend takes out a handgun, puts it down, takes out another handgun, puts it down, pulls a rifle from under his coat, puts it down, pulls a machine gun out of another one, throws it down, takes a grenade out of his pocket, tosses it down. He takes a knife and tosses it down. He finds another gun in the back of his back. And by the time he gets done, it's so funny because there's just this whole string of weapons on the ground because he was emptying himself. So when Jesus, when the son emptied himself and came in the form of a little baby, which we are celebrating at this time of year, of what did he empty himself? Let me give you some suggestions. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus had to be potty trained? Think about it. The one who created the worlds, who created bladders, has to learn how to control his. Being a child, playing with other kids. You know, we get, Christians sometimes get the idea that Jesus, even as a child, walked a foot off the ground and had something over his head that looked like a lighted Frisbee. But he looked and acted like a normal kid. Can you imagine if Jesus is running and kind of trips on a rock and falls and scraped his knee? He can't put his hand on that sore and say, in the name of me, be healed. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I want us to see Jesus really gave up something. He had to learn how to read. The one who spoke through the prophets, the one who created all the fine details of the world, had to learn his, we'll call them ABCs, though they, didn't, they use different letters. If he wanted to go somewhere, he couldn't just be there. Because that's what deity does. They just be there. He had to walk. He had to ride a donkey or a horse or take a boat. Perhaps. I was thinking about this because, you know, I know what you, I'd love to have read stories about him growing up. Wouldn't you? We only have one story, and that's when he's 12. But I got to thinking perhaps one of the reasons why we don't is because even though he was the son of God, his life as a child is very ordinary. You know, Jesus had hormones. Now, I'm not saying he sinned. Having hormones is not a sin. It's what you do with them. But he got 12, 13, 14. Starting to get more than just little fuzz on his face probably started to notice girls. 
because not only was he fully God, he was fully human. The church is always taught he was both God and human. He was a blue-collar laborer. The scripture says, uh, most of them translate the word tecton as carpenter, but it could also be a stonemason. Many scholars think that because the government had building projects, some things never change, do they? The government had building projects uh, five miles away from Nazareth that he and his dad would walk five miles before sunup, work as a stonemason or as a carpenter all day, and then walk home and then repeat the next day. You can understand why he understood the common laborer because he was one. We know from Scripture that Jesus knew hunger and thirst. He could be tired and weary. Imagine having existed for eons and never experienced that until he came in. He knew real temptation. I have here in this little box a wonderful Chocolate chip cookie. How I know it's wonderful is because I bought a dozen just, to, you know, and I thought before I show this, I want to make sure it tastes good. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. So I have this wonderful chocolate chip cookie, and I don't know if you can see, it's got chunks of chocolate. And I have here, I didn't know these existed until I went to Tom Thumb yesterday, yucca root. How many have heard of yucca root? Oh, some of you are more sophisticated than me. And I was thinking, a temptation is not a temptation unless you're tempted. So, supposing I put the yucca root right there and this one red cookie right here. I know some of you are saying, you're hoping I'll say every head bowed and every eye closed and you're going to run up and grab that thing. <laughs> now, if I said, okay, I'm going to walk out of the room and you have a choice. You can pick that cookie or this delicious yuck. What do you think you would be choosing? Come on, this isn't that hard. Ah, the cookie. You see, we weren't tempted by the yucca root. If I said, if you'd like to steal the yucca root, go ahead. Eh, no issue. Not going to do it. If I said, you can take the cookie and I'll turn my back, then we'd probably do it. Yeah, it's the first one there. He's got, he's got an advantage. The point is, a temptation is not a temptation unless you're tempted. When it says that Jesus went up in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, those temptations were real to Jesus. The temptation to prove himself to the world, the temptation to have the power. Think of all the good the Son of God could have done for the earth if he would have just taken Satan's offer and worshipped him and then was made the Caesar. The temptations were there, or it wasn't a temptation. In fact, the book of Hebrews said, he was tempted in all points like we are, 
but without sin. We need to realize, in fact, this is what's encouraging me. Do you know he couldn't do miracles independently? Now think about this. He was the one, as the word of God with the Father, spoke things into existence. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And now, he had laid aside all that omnipotence. And we see in Scripture that he never did a single miracle, healing, exorcism until baptized in water, Holy Spirit came on him. Luke says he went up into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, and it says after that 40 days, he came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was after that he could not even do miracles because he was the Son of God. He needed the Holy Spirit's help to do that. Now, this does not take away from who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the perfect Lamb of God. But we need to understand what he gave up. He gave up the ability to just do stuff. That's why he talked about he could only do what he saw his Father do if the Holy Spirit didn't empower him to do it. I remember in one scripture in Luke, it says, I think this is the story when they brought the man down to the stealing lamp. And it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal. Now, why did Luke put that in? I thought the power of the Lord was always present. But we find sometimes Jesus was limited. It says he went to Nazareth and he can only do a few Minor miracles, you know, headache, sore toe, because of their unbelief. Well, he's the son of God. He's omnipotent. No, there are other factors involved because he emptied himself. Are you tracking with me? And lastly, Even though he had a reputation as a miracle worker, an exorcist, a great teacher, speaker, it took divine revelation for people to know that he was the Son of God. Now think about it. Israel had a long line of miracle-working prophets. In fact, even in Jesus' time, there were two or three other rabbis that history says that had miracle-working power from God. But the only way that even his disciples knew that he was the Son of God and the Lord was by divine revelation. He said to his disciples one day, who does everybody say I am? Uh, well, some think you're John the Baptist, Elijah or something. He said, who do you think I am? Peter said, it's like Peter had this aha moment. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? You didn't get that from people. It was revealed to you by my father. 
even his closest disciple, even though Jesus had done all that he'd done throughout history and before history, even his closest disciples would not recognize him as the Son of God except by revelation. My friends, we cannot even begin to imagine what Jesus gave up. Now, why? Oh, I love this verse. Second Corinthians 5, verse 19. Why did he go to all of this? God was in Christ. Would you say that with me? God was in Christ. Say it one more time. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We read just a moment ago in Philippians 2, that Jesus was obedient to death, even death. So my question is, why? And even a deeper question, where was the Father when all that was going on on the cross? All by the Holy Spirit said this, God was in Christ. When Christ was on the cross, remember his last prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God was in Christ at the time. Jesus came to bring us back to the Father. That's why Paul said they have a ministry, and we have a ministry of reconciliation. Be reconciled. Be at peace with God. Peace on earth. Good will toward men. God was in Christ on the cross, saying, come back. We think God had the problem. That God was just really angry and Jesus stood in the way of an abusive father and stood in the way so he couldn't kill his kids. Ah, but that's not the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Father was in the Son at Calvary. And with those arms outstretched, the Son and the Father through the Son are saying, return. I'm not angry with you anymore. I've received you. You're clean. Come back to me. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to the Father. And I'll guarantee you today, somebody here, or somebody listening today online, needs to hear this. God is not angry with you. Well, but you don't know what I did. God is not angry. With, how can you worship a God that you think's mad at you? How can you love a God that you know is just waiting to punish you? Yeah, you can say the words, but your heart can't do it. 
God's not angry. I screwed up my life. And, you know, our choices have consequences. That doesn't mean that in the midst of the choices or the consequences that the Father hasn't received you, that the Father doesn't love you. I think one of the most beautiful stories in the Gospels is the woman taken in the act of adultery. You remember what Jesus said? Neither do I condemn you. Don't do anything. But the point I emphasize is neither do I I want you to know that when Jesus showed up, if you want to know the Father's attitude toward you, read the Gospels and look at Jesus. Because how he pictured the Father is how he, the Father, looks at you. This ought to be good news for some. Paul said, Father, who willingly gave up his son, now willingly with his son, freely given. My friends, this Christmas season, the greatest gift we could have was the father and the son working together for him to become a baby, to become the one that says, Come back. Come back. Come back. Come back. Don't let those fears, don't let those past failures stand in your way and trip you up. Come back. Come back. Be reconciled to God. God has highly exalted him. It says in Philippians, and given him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every shall Every tongue confess. And up until recently, I thought, yeah, some people can say, oh, Jesus, Lord, but, you know, under duress. But in the Greek language, it gives this. Every he shall bow and every tongue shall joyfully. Joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The good news is we don't have to wait for that. We, come on, somebody praise him. Let's stand. And as we close out today, Let's sing these songs as we said at the beginning as worship. And think about what these words are saying. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. The word of the Father now in flesh appearing. And let's worship.
never be able to thank you enough. Gifted communicator, my brother. Thank you so much, Susan, for blessing us today. Father, we thank you for the revelation of the gospel in your son. Thank you for the incarnation. Hallelujah. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in the greatest Christmas, a gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Every tongue will confess, every language will declare that you are Lord. Hallelujah. Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus Christo, El Señor. Hallelujah. God bless you. Go get them, tigers. Amen.